Good morning. Good morning. It is good to be back. Brian's going to make his way up here to read for us. Yes, I'll be reading from 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will, for there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For the reason the gospel has also pre- or was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. <clears throat> um, it was good to be back. Um, I was... Got to spend a week in Savannah on the beach. I feel like I lived on the beach. Um, hopefully I don't look too much like it. Uh, uh, I think I, we used like four bottles of sunscreen just on me alone. Uh, you know, just so that we didn't have a reoccurrence of melanoma, hopefully. Lord willing. Uh, I think we spent li- at least five hours on the beach every day. Boys loved it. It was a delight. Um, I have to show you a picture at some point of Winnie, who took a face plant into the sand off of a chair, and just her face was just covered in sand. She was not happy, uh, but we thought it was funny, uh, so we took a picture. Poor girl, she did great on the sand and all that stuff too. And uh, then I got to spend a, about a half a week in Charlotte with one of my best friends from seminary. His name's Mitch. Some of you know him. Uh, that was a delight. Uh, he's pastoring a church just outside of Charlotte. Um, so that, that was just good to catch up with some friends. And um, I trust that over the past few weeks, Pastor Rusty and Pastor Dave have fed you the word. Um, both of those men love God and, and love his word and treasure Christ. Um, but man, it's good to be back. Like I, I hate missing. Like I just genuinely hate not being here. Um, I've been gone for three weeks. The first week I was preaching at Refuge, and, and what a joy it is to be there. But we're kind of, some of you know, we're in this, in this dating relationship with Refuge City Church. So uh, hoping to merge with them this fall. And uh, so that's been good, but it's like kind of in between two places, you know, getting to preach there and getting to preach here. And, um, but it's just, it's just a, a delight to be back. And I am thankful for you guys and Thank for the chance to go rest and uh, spend some time, dedicated time uh, with my family. So I want to begin here this week in First Peter. We'll be in the first part of chapter 4, but I want to go back into chapter 3 a little bit and walk our way into chapter 4. But I want to begin with this question, what does it mean to steward God's grace? What does it mean to be a steward of God's grace? You and I can't earn God's grace. He gives it as He pleases, but we get to steward it. 
Now, it's by His grace also that we steward it, but nevertheless, we have to ask the question, how do we steward God's grace? What does it mean? What does it look like, if you will, to put this in a few different words, what does it look like to consider God's grace or to live in light of God's grace or maybe to manage, if I use that term loosely, but to manage God's grace or maybe a better way to say it would be to live faithfully in light of or because of God's grace given to us. What does that look like? And that's really what Peter is aiming at, I think, at least in this general section in the couple weeks before this and the couple weeks coming. What does it look like to steward God's grace? And much of this conversation thus far in 1 Peter has been dealing with stewarding God's grace specifically through suffering, specifically through or because of living righteously or living for God's name. So, stewarding God's grace specifically in the realm of suffering, but suffering that's specifically because of righteousness in our lives. If you remember back to 1 Peter 3, Right there at the end of 14, I hope if you have your Bibles, I I hope you do. There at the end of 14, beginning of 15, he says this, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Meaning those who persecute you. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And I think that really kind of encapsulates or summarizes for us chapter 3. Have no fear of them, but in your hearts, really honor, love, cherish, fear Christ the Lord as the Holy One. Be holy, for He is holy. So how will you steward God's grace in the face of suffering and persecution? He says this, by honoring Christ in your hearts. And if you're honoring Him honoring him in your hearts, he goes on to say that then you will act with gentleness, respect, good behavior, ultimately doing God's will, which you're going to see this idea come up again in chapter 4, doing God's will. But if you honor him in your heart, if you treasure him in your heart, if he is bestowed the place of treasure in your heart, then these things will come out. Gentleness, respect, good behavior, so on and so forth. So this is what it looks like, at least the fruit of stewarding God's grace. It will look like the things we just talked about, acting with gentleness, respect, good behavior, and so on and so on. I don't think that's an all-comprehensive list. But then he says, look, so have no fear, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Then he says, But look, Christ died in your place. And he says this, interesting here, the righteous for the unrighteous. In verse 13, I'm sorry, 3 verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now now think about that for just a second. Think about the, really the juxtaposition that's just been presented to us here. He just said, suffer well, honoring Christ by living righteously, and it's in the context of people suffering because they're living righteously. That, that's, the, that's the first part. Now the second part, he says, hey, uh, let, me, let me back up, I, I missed a part here. Suffering well 
by living righteously, that he, and basically the idea that's happening here is that they're being rejected by the unrighteous because of their righteousness. Okay, keep that thought. But now he says in verse 18, but Jesus died, the righteous one died for the unrighteous. Here's what he says in verse 18, that you all were unrighteous and judged by God. You were all rejected by God. As you are rejected by the people. So, you're being rejected by the people because you're living righteously, but then he says, the righteous one has died for the unrighteous, and he, he's referring to them who are suffering. Listen, the ultimate key to suffering well in the midst of persecution is not, I mean, this is, this is helpful. Well, Christ suffered more. That, that's helpful. But that's not the, not the ultimate key when it comes to suffering through rejection for the gospel. Listen, we are rejected by this world because of the righteousness that is in us, and we are also rejected by God because of our unrighteousness prior to our righteousness. But Jesus suffered the ultimate rejection from God, and he says what? Right there at the end of verse 18. That he might bring us to God, that we might be welcomed into God's presence, that our rejection by God might be turned into acceptance by God, that we would become His children, His family, co-heirs of the throne. So yes, it is helpful to think, well, well Christ suffered more and so on and so forth, we also have to understand that he suffered in such a way that has removed the rejection of our Father. He took the wrath that was due us, the leaving us to ourselves that was due to us. He takes that and paves the way for us to be in God's presence. So when life is hard, when the world rejects you because of walking faithfully to the Lord, how do you steward God's grace in that moment? That's the question uh, I want to ask before we really get into chapter 4. We think about this idea, just how I feel among the world right now, an outcast, despised, broken, disregarded, because of the righteousness that's in me as a Christ follower, because of His righteousness that is in me, I am rejected. That is how I also once felt before God. Right? Despised, rejected. And just fully so. But because Christ, but now because Christ has died for me, the unrighteous, the rejected, the orphan, now I am accepted, adopted. I have been brought to God because the righteous suffered for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God. If I can, by God's grace, remember that in the midst of 
struggle, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of going upstream or against the grain of the culture, if I can remember that I who was once rejected by God because of Christ and God's plan through Christ, I now am accepted by God, then what need do I have to be accepted by the world around me? That is a practical example of what it means to steward God's grace in the midst of suffering, in the midst of suffering for righteousness' sake. Then Peter says this in verse 22. Your hope can rest in this promise because, verse 22 says this, through the resurrection, uh, beginning of the end of 2021, going into 22, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Here's here's what Peter is trying to encourage us with is that our substitutionary savior that he just talked about in verse 18 is now lord over all he's now exercising his lordship for you and for me over everything he's working the suffering for your good he's working the evil for our good he's working the pain for our good all for His purposes, all for His glory, and He is sovereign over it all. And so when you are rejected by this evil world, our acceptance before God now and forever is as sure as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. It is that sure. So naturally, this flows right into chapter 4, verse 1. Again, continuing this idea of we are called to steward God's grace. At this point, Peter is still talking about suffering for God's sake, but he moves into further kind of implications or an application of what this looks like. Uh, fancy term, more, more ethical speaking here. How are we to live now? I think Paul, Paul, my goodness, I'm preaching on Paul tonight. <laughs> Peter, this morning, is, I, I think his main point in this next section, I, I think he kind of transitions from this, uh, like, suffering because of persecution, and now kind of more into this vein of what's it look like to carefully suffer well, particularly as it relates to battling the desires of the flesh. I think he gives a short treatment here on your flesh, your desires are going to be at war within you in the midst of being persecuted. Now again, when we think of people suffering underneath persecution... So we think about going against the grain in our culture, like, we just want, just come give me a pat on the back, right? It'll be okay, it'll be okay. But here, Peter kind of drives into, like, there's going to be this struggle inside your heart, and you need to be aware of it, and you need to battle it well. When faced with your desires of the flesh versus the desires of the Spirit, which is going to win? And how, and how, and how can we steward God's grace to fight that kind of battle? Now, I, I'm convinced that you and I 
are rather blind or ignorant or naive to this war that's around us and in us. I'm just often surprised as I either reflect on my own day and I look back and go, wow, I, I did not prepare well for that. Why? Because I was ignorant of the, or blind to the reality that there really is something going on here. There really is a battle going on inside my own heart. Or watch people, again, just, just like me, I'm just giving an example, that was me, now an example outside of myself, that if people were just making decisions here and there and left and right as if there's not this battle taking place, as if there's not this war taking place. And 1 Peter 4, 1 says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. You arm yourself when there is a fight. When there is a battle. When something is about to go down. You arm yourselves. You don't arm yourself when it's just, uh, you know, hey, it's just going to be a kind of a cool day and, you know, we're going to go do this and we're going to work and I'm going to get this done and we'll come home and we're going to do this. And, no, you arm yourself when you know that for this day there will be a battle. And, and my point right before this was that I don't think we wake up in the morning going, I need to arm myself for there's going to be a battle today. We don't realize that I got to arm myself because before I put my feet out of my bed onto the floor, there's going to be a battle. Let alone the distance between the bedroom floor to the bathroom floor, there's going to be another battle. Before I leave the bathroom, there's going to be another battle. Before I get in the car, there's going to be another battle. Before I make it to work, there's going to be another battle. Whether I interact with people all day or sit in a cubicle all day, there's going to be a battle. Arm yourselves. It's a serious reality. Do we live this way? Armed and ready for battle. Now, now I get it. I get it, right? <clears throat> Be ready to battle getting that tattoo or becoming drunk, right? And if you resist that, you're good. You fought the battle, you've won it, right? You didn't get any ink. And you didn't indulge yourself to the point of drunkenness. Well, we're, we're good. But, but how about fighting against the gratifying of your flesh when you were being overbearing and arguing with your spouse or your friend or your parent? How about in that moment? Did you fight that war? Did you ready your mind for that war? Listen, we can all avoid the tattoo parlors, or at least most of us can't. Pastor Rusty can't. <laughs> a few, got a few, a few laughs there. Okay, yeah, he's not here, so I, <laughs> and he'll listen to the podcast too. So, there you go. We're not. How about those mundane moments? 
Again, the one before you put your feet on the floor. The one before you walk to the bathroom. The one when you're looking at your spouse across from the bed. The one when you're interacting with your parents at breakfast. Have you armed yourselves with this same way of thinking that we're going to flesh out today? Here's our question. How are we going to steward God's grace in the war of the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit of God? Peter says this way, by thinking, by thinking, by thinking biblically and carefully, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Listen, some of us are so, myself included, can be so lazy when it comes to our thinking biblically. We can now, we, listen, we can spend hours researching the latest fad. We can spend hours studying to complete a project. We can spend hours working with our hands or serving with this latest issue. But when it comes to dedicated thinking biblically, we can be so stinking lazy. But remember, there's a battle. There's a war. Arm yourselves this way with this thinking. By thinking with Christological clarity. Meaning, we let the gospel interpret life for us, not our own fleshly lenses. We let the Word of God filter our lives. Today, in many ways, it will be an exercise of that. Now listen, you and I can't change our desires. God must do that. However, our thinking shapes our desires our convictions shape our desires they it begins to mold and direct and change and so that's why peter says arm yourselves with this way of thinking listen we can choose to feed certain desires and starve other desires he says arm yourself so i want to give you this from this passage four thoughts as we steward god's grace to engage the war of our desires. Four thoughts from this passage. The first one being this. Know that suffering is designed to drive you away from the worship of self. Suffering is meant to drive you away from the worship of self. That's going to take me a couple minutes to to get to where that's at. But the first part, 1 Peter 4, 1. The second part of that says this. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Let's talk about this for a second. <clears throat> Does that mean suffering produces someone who never sins? I don't think that's what it means. It does not mean we do not sin or some measure of purification through suffering. I mean, listen, suffering, think about this practically, suffering in some people produces uh, righteousness. And some people, suffering, they move on to greater rebellion. For some people, it goes one direction. For other people, it goes a different direction. Suffering does not always produce righteousness. If you look back at the context, verse uh, 17, For it is better to suffer for doing right, if that should be God's will, than for doing wrong. It is better... To suffer for doing right, if that should be God's will, then for doing wrong. 
when we think about this verse here, has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin means whoever has suffered for doing right and still goes on obeying God in spite of the suffering it involved carries this idea that that person has made a clean break with sin. Now, now the next verse, and I'm going to come, I'm going to come back to that thought, but I want you to look at the next, next verse really quick. Verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So instead of passions for human things, passion for God, the idea here, I think when he says has ceased from sin, I think the idea is this. That when your desire for the glory of God becomes greater than your desire to indulge the flesh, that you have been set free from the bondage of sin. You have made a clean break from sin. Let me put it another way. The love of your heart for Christ, the love in your heart for Christ, is more than it is for the protection of the flesh. That there's this there's this, when I'm willing to suffer because of my love for Christ, and particularly suffering that's brought on because of righteous living. So I'm going to choose the will of God when it brings me suffering. And in that moment, I've chosen God's way, but it's bringing suffering. And I still want to do what pleases God. That person has made a break with sin. That person has made a clean break from the bondage of sin. Back to verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He says, he says, listen, you're not to be governed by fleshly emotions, but by God's will. One breaks clearly with sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer by human passions, but by the will of God. Right? It's in that moment, I've chosen righteous, but suffering has come upon me that oftentimes our human passions say, I don't want the suffering, let me just swim downstream with everyone else. We're not to be ruled by those passions. Now listen, emotions, I don't believe emotions are in and of themselves bad. They're amoral. But they always reveal the status of your soul. They're like the, the dashboard on your car. You know that, that, that stinking check engine light? It comes on, and you're like, oh man, there's another $1,000. Well, our emotions are oftentimes like that. Oh, where did that come from? Where did that come from? It's God's grace to us, telling us something about the inner workings of our heart. And listen, man, you're not off the hook here. You're just as emotional as the ladies. 
oftentimes our emotions just look different. But he says we're not to be owned by these passions. We're not to be live by these passions of these human passions, that is, but by the will of God. But what is God working in us so that we would no longer be driven by selfish desires, but instead be people who find joy in the will of God? What is God doing? This is where suffering is key. Suffering is meant to pry open your hands and mind that hold so tightly to the pleasures of this world. Instead of holding tightly to God's will. Suffering, by God's grace, helps us see in many ways, the emptiness of the worship of self. The emptiness in getting our way. The emptiness in having control. The emptiness in emotionalism. The emptiness in isolation. The emptiness in physical health. The emptiness in always self-justifying. The emptiness in always defending yourself. The emptiness in always trying to prove yourself righteous. The emptiness in these things. Suffering helps reveal the emptiness in these things. And so by, therefore, prying our hands off of these things that are so tightly gripped that we might see the fleeting joy of those moments in order to grab the everlasting joy of knowing God and living His way. To know that suffering is designed to drive you away from the worship of self. Listen, at the heart of this human passions is the worship of self. The second thing I want you to see is that to know that temptation is real. To know that temptation is real. To not, to not suppress the reality of temptation. To not hide from it. To not ignore it. To not minimize it. Verse 3 and 4, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. For some reason, we tend to live as though the temptation to sin isn't always ever in front of us. That isn't perpetually in front of us. Like it's here sometimes and it's not here other times. No, it's always there. The temptation to sin is always there. Whether you're talking to your spouse, whether you're at work, whether you're laying in the bed having just woke up, the temptation is there. I I think this is why. I think in our good, in quotes, if you're listening to the podcast, moralistic culture, we have relegated sin to outward works of the flesh, like drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, right? You know, tattoos. Uh, I'm, I'm just kidding. If you don't, you know I'm kidding about that. Anyways, drunkenness, orgies, drinky parties. And so what happens is we stay away from those things and therefore we're not tempted to sin. But this passage also includes things like sensuality, passions, idolatry, and those things. 
you're faced with right now. I was tempted to like put a really provocative thing, like not sexually provocative, but like a very like provoking comment here, like go after some really like sin that I knew would like hit everyone's heart, you know, like just, and then tease that out and go, see, now some of you right now are idolizing something and worshiping right now. You were tempted and this is real and I just proved it and I decided not, I actually I wrote it out and then I decided to take it out, but, and you're saying, well, Matt, you probably should have just done it now. But you got the point. Why shouldn't we live this way? Why shouldn't we live this way? Oh, because it dishonors God. Yeah, that, that is true. And, and, and that would be paramount. But what does Peter say here? Because you've had enough. Because you've had enough. Like, haven't you had enough? Let me tell you, you've had enough. Why do you keep wanting to go back? You've had enough. You should know it's enough. You think you haven't had enough, but you have had enough. He's telling you to tell your to tell your to have your mind tell your passions that you've had plenty. Stop. When you're arguing with your spouse because you want your way. When you're arguing with your parents because you want your way. Because you want to be king. Because you want to be sovereign in that moment. He's saying, stop it. You've had enough. You say, well, you know, I haven't had some terrible past like the Gentiles he's talking about. To which I would say to you, did you look in the mirror yesterday? Or the day before? I'm sure... You could find one of those days filled with wicked idolatry, drunk on getting what you wanted from one hour to the next. And Peter says, you've had enough. You've had your fill. You should not want to live any longer the kind of life which was given to following sinful human desires. The time for indulging the flesh is over. You've had enough. Indeed, he's going to go into verse 5 that if you live this way as though you've not had enough, you will give an account to God. Now, I want to give you kind of a couple aspects of temptation here in this passage very quickly. The first is sensuality. Sensuality, which is the idea of going wherever the lust of your flesh takes you. Just going wherever, the love of money, wherever it takes you, the love of sex, wherever it takes you, the love of influence, wherever it takes you, love of control, wherever it takes you, love of material possessions and greed, wherever it takes you. Peter's calling this kind of thing lawless idolatry. Listen, whenever God is not worshipped supremely, Again, ultimately, at the root of it is the worship of self, this sensuality, getting wherever my flesh longs to go. Let me give you some examples of where you and I are practically tempted to pursue sensuality. <clears throat> Men using intellectual power, using verbal volume to dominate our spouses.
Parents, affirmation from your children, giving them what they want so that you can have their affirmation. Teaching them to be ruled by the wrong things when we do such a thing. Driven by the sensuality, our flesh longing for their affirmation, going wherever it takes us. Or spending money on this or that. Again, trying to use our money to get whatever our flesh is longing for. Or coming to church for sensual, for sensuality, for, for your flesh's longings. And the church can give it to you. And I come to get instead of to die to the flesh and to care for others. These are the things that Peter is saying. You've had enough. You've had enough. You don't need any more. Sensuality. Second is swimming upstream. You ever tried to do that or tried to swim the waves at the beach? It's very fresh in my mind. Kind of dive into the, the waves. One night we went out and there was a storm like brewing, but the the ocean was kind of keeping the storm at bay, and, but the waves were getting bigger, and, you know, us, there was like five people in the beach, and, you know, four of those was me and the three older boys, you know, we're crazy, but whatever. Sarah's like, you ever wonder why no one else is in the beach? I'm like, huh, you know. My wife's probably the wiser one here, but we were, enjo- <laughs> we were enjoying these big waves, I mean big waves for, uh, for that beach, but it's hard to swim against these things. And when he, he, he talks about this idea of like joining them or running with them, the idea is an expression which vividly reflects this like frantic pace in this continual search for true pleasure. That we just go at it with them. Where are we tempted to do these kinds of things? Kids and their activities, careers and material possessions, legalism, self-righteousness. We're, we're tempted to pursue, swim the stream with the rest of the world on all these things. Like this rapid pouring out of unrestrained indulgence. And listen, even though... Like when we're talking to your spouse across the bed at night, or you're talking to your parents at the breakfast table, and you recognize it, so you're a follower of Jesus, let's assume for a second, and there's this restraint to you wanting to indulge yourself in that moment. I want to win the argument, or I want to get my way, or I want to convince it, whatever the case is, I want to indulge myself in this moment. And you recognize a restraint. You need to recognize two things in that moment. One, that it is God's grace that is restraining your self-indulgence. The second thing you need to recognize is that it could be unrestrained, and you could lead headlong into it. So the temptation is to head, just to give in and to dive headlong into it, to swim downstream with everyone else. I mean, listen, we were created to live in unity and community with others, with other image bearers. We cannot be naive to the reality that going against the grain of the world, the lost, is still going to be hard. 
We can't suppress that reality or ignore that when we go to work or school or the question for us, though, and the question for you I would ask is, is the swim actually hard? Some of you, it's not hard because you're just swimming with the world. Is the swim hard? The temptation is to swim right along with them. The choice to follow Christ in every moment, even the mundane moment, will then expose ourselves to mockery, to rejection. And we'll be tempted to give way. But Peter reminds, he goes, this is the next place he goes. He goes, be reminded that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. There's, there's actually an encouragement for those suffering because of righteousness at the hands of the unrighteous that comes from judgment. So three, know that judgment is coming. Five through six. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I'm really going to focus on five, but let me read six right now so that you get the context. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit as the way God does. All right, so first of all, let's ask, what, what does he mean, right, by judge the dead? What is this judge the dead section? What's he mean? Judge the living and the dead. Just to keep this short for sake of time, I think it, it, it means this. It was because of the coming final judgment that the gospel was preached. Even to those who believed in Christ and then later died. Meaning, not that the gospel was preached to the dead, but to people who are now dead. The gospel is preached to them. It's kind of like saying this. Uh, you, you know, my, my, my grandfather passed away a f- few years ago. So it'd be like saying this. Pastor Jones preached the gospel to my grandpa. Now, those of you who know he's passed away, you don't understand what I'm saying as though Pastor Jones went to him and preached the gospel. You understand that at some point when he was living, the gospel was preached to him. So that kind of getting into this, this earlier passage back in verse 18, I'm uh, not verse 18, but uh, where does he say, uh, because formerly did not obey, go, go back to chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive. Uh, because they formerly did not obey, and that he's the Noah thing, baptism which corresponds. Uh, my goodness, where is it at? In which he, oh, there we go, verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in those days. I think it's kind of like saying, in that passage, Say, so I, I heard, uh, who was it? It was, it? it was Paul Tripp. Think of it this way. We would say, the queen was born in 1925. What, was, the, was she queen in 1925? No, she wasn't queen in 1925. 
but she was born. But we don't say, well, the queen who wasn't the queen was born in 1925. She wasn't the queen at the time she was born in 1925. We understand that she was a person born in 1925 and later became the queen. So that's the idea in verse 18. But when we get to this point in verse uh, now, now I've gone and lost my place. Now when we get to verse, chapter 4, verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Basically, it's the idea that knowing that judgment is coming, knowing that judgment is coming, the gospel was proclaimed to them, and that he now judges those who even, those, sorry, I have lost my train of thought here. My goodness. Not that the gospel was preached, again, this earlier passage, to those, to the dead people, that, but and those who are now, but the gospel was preached to them who were alive and now dead. Now we get to, he is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is not to be, this is my point, this is not, the same kind of confusion uh, that I'm confusing you with uh, as the earlier passage. We're going to move on. There we go. Here's what I want you to see. There we go. We love and follow a holy and just God. We follow and love a holy and just God. I think we often forget that justice is coming. Right? That's why we have to oftentimes take up justice. As though it will never happen. Now there are, we do need to fight for justice and so on. Yeah, absolutely. There, there are times for that. It's appropriate. So, but not to do it as though it all depends on us because ultimately God will bring justice. Listen, the world and all its brokenness, all the crimes, all the hurt, etc. There is coming a day when God will rain full and perfect justice down upon it all. He will make it all right. I don't mean like he'll make it just all okay. What I mean is he will make it right. There's coming a day when all faithfulness will be vindicated and the mocker will be defeated and judged forever. I want you to write, write well, you, you don't have time to write all this down, but someone said this week, as, as I was reading, said this, we are not stuck in this moment of suffering this moment of suffering is a part of his grand story of redemption, and this moment is marching toward justice, and it will be done. We are not stuck in this moment. Or in that moment when you want justice between you and your spouse, or in that moment, child, when you want justice between you and your parent, that you're not stuck in that moment. That moment is a part of a series of moments marching toward God's justice. You're not stuck there. For some of us, for some people, you will go through moments in life where the only thing that will get you through is the promise that this evil will be defeated and that justice will be served. Know that judgment is coming. But I also want you to hear the passage further. Because judgment is coming, Peter says that's why the gospel was preached. 
because judgment is coming, so there is a sense in which we can rest that judgment is coming, but there's also a sense in which we should not rest because judgment is coming, in the sense that we must preach the gospel. And we often think, oh, thank goodness, that person will get what they deserve. Yes, that person may deserve wrath, but so did you. And someone preached the gospel to you because they knew that judgment was coming and they wanted you to be judged righteous through Christ. So if you believe judgment is coming, listen, you don't need to get revenge. We don't need that person to to make us feel better or need that person to give us a hug or whatever it is that we think justice looks like. Instead, we can lay our lives down, even for those who have harmed us, and share the gospel with this person. Why? Because we know that all wrong will be made right, that ultimately God will get justice. But we also believe that we, in the gospel, did not receive justice. Jesus got justice. You and I got grace. And if we believe judgment is coming and we love others, we will share the gospel with them. Lastly, we steward the grace of God in overcoming sinful desires by knowing that the only hope is the gospel. Number four, know that the only hope is the gospel. Verse six, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This one's pretty simple. We will be judged in the flesh. The world around us will judge us. We will be judged by men, by women, in the flesh, as men, as women. Now listen, sometimes the judgment's right. Sometimes you look at us and they call out something that, yes, is true and wrong in our lives. Absolutely. And it doesn't matter whether it's coming from a donkey or coming from some angel, whatever. If it's true of us, then it's true of us. But what we're talking about here is being judged by human standards and being found wanting. That's what this passage is about. Being judged by human standards in the flesh and being found to come up short. Right? I mean, very practical in our culture today. Certain things in our culture, if you don't celebrate it with the culture, then you are found, you are found wanting in what? Your love for the culture. Your love for them. If I don't celebrate this with the same pride that you have for it, then I am found wanting in the area of love for others. Judged by man according to the flesh. But the second, so that's the first reality in this this verse. The second reality is that all of us will still face the result of the sin of Adam. Physical death. All will die. We shall die. I mean, unless Jesus comes right before that, but... We will die. Death is coming. Physical death is coming. But those who have believed the gospel, this is the third reality in this, in this verse, they are judged by God's standards and God's way. They're judged by God's standards and God's way. 
and they who are covered in the blood of Christ shall be judged righteous. And they shall live eternally as God does. That's what he means by that they might live in the spirit the way God does. That they shall live eternally as God does. The hope of the gospel. So for this is reason, the gospel was preached. That even though you're going to suffer, even though you're going to be judged, that you might believe this gospel, cling to this gospel, treasure this gospel, so that you might live eternally as God does. The hope of the gospel is this eternal acceptance and life with the Father. Though we may be rejected by the world, we are accepted because of Christ with the Father. Now back to the beginning. He says in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So the question is this, are you thinking this way? Are you stewarding God's grace this way? By thinking this way. This is what it looks like to steward steward God's grace when it comes to crucifying temptations and facing the upstream battle against the world. It's easier to swim downstream with everyone else. Listen, if we're going to steward God's grace, it looks like holding on with both hands to the gospel promise of eternal life. That He came, lived a perfect life, shed His blood for your sin, rose again, conquered death, so that He may gift us with this incredible idea of eternal life. That He might, what's He say earlier, bring us to be with God, right? To bring us to God. Life that lasts forever in the presence of God. In that moment where you struggle with temptation, you can say, you know what, this is not all there is. I've had enough of that. This is not all there is. Eternity is sure and true. Because of Christ, I will live beyond this forever and ever. Or in that moment of being mocked or misunderstood, we can remind ourselves, we can arm ourselves with this way of thinking that though I am judged as worthy of mockery for my faithfulness to God, I am in Christ and judged righteous by God because of the blood that covers me. Peter says to arm yourselves, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. The blood covers you because that you're accepted by God. You don't need to be accepted by the world. And you don't need these human passions anymore. Because you have all you need in being accepted by God because of the blood of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your words here. Father, I pray that we would arm ourselves with this way of thinking, that that we would understand that this is an active task, something we actually have to put our hands to the plow and go do. But Father, that we would also remember that you give us the grace even to put our hands to the plow. That he who began a good work will see it to completion. That you, Father, who engaged us in the depth of our depravity, giving us hearts to believe the gospel, that just as your grace 
was what was needed then. Your grace is what's needed now for us to put our hands to the plow. Father, that, that we would live not swimming downstream with the world. That, Father, that we could endure mockery, that we could endure suffering for righteousness' sake, that we can say that the gospel and the God that the gospel brings us to, that that is our prize. We don't need these other things anymore. That because of Christ, we have it all here. Everything I was created to long for is here in the God who made me. I pray that you'd help us to see this as true. Arm us, Father, please, with this way of thinking. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to uh, uh, partake in the Lord's Supper today. And <clears throat> I want to just give you a few moments of encouragement that practically, if you're not walking in a way that is armed with this way of thinking, that you would uh, confess that to God. That you would say, God, please forgive me for being lazy when it comes to arming myself. Or, and that you would ask Him for help and ask Him for guidance to do so. For the grace, to steward His grace that way. I also encourage you that if you're walking any, any measure of sin that you're not willing to make a clean break with, a sin that still you love more than you love Christ. If that's present, please don't take, don't participate. But I would encourage you though in this moment, see the body that was broken for that sin. Ask God to help you treasure Him more than that sin and then repent and walk forward and partake. Um, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you just to watch. Uh, watch a group of people that love Christ. Um, that adore Him and treasure Him and are thankful for His sacrifice for their sins.